Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into the garden. And we have one of our returning guests, Matt Williams is here. Space journalist, space podcaster, space writer, uh, science fiction writer, uh, guy who I'm sure is excited about the Artemis mission, guy who is, I'm sure, is excited about the James Webb uh, telescope uh, pictures coming back and all that stuff. And also, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and first of all, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for coming back in. You've, you've been on the show a bunch of times in a short, uh, short time span. Uh, in our time, now I say in our time because yeah. I never know when I'm going to drop shows. So in the audience, it may not be the same. But you know, all of your prior shows have dropped, so uh, they've heard it. Oh, he just changed his uh, filter, his background, so it looks like he's on the moon with the uh, astronauts, which is one mm-hmm. of the things that we will uh, dive into. Yeah, he's, he's not breathing. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Better get underground uh, into one of those lava tubes that uh, is at uh, apparently at 68 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, yep. So for those who don't know, Matt was on Garden Views before in situ resource utilization, which is a name that I, I constantly regret doing because it's so long to say. But basically, it was about current events in space and future planned missions. And that phrase is one he used that I never heard about, which is how will people live or how do they plan to live on uh, extraterrestrial environments or, or non-Earth environments. Um, he also joined me in a truly excellent show on Battlestar Galactica, the, the 2000s reboot, uh, and uh, The Red Planet, where we dove into Mars, uh, all things Mars, including its stats, its gravity, its environment, um, future missions planned, and things like that. And Drumroll, please. Those of you who are longtime listeners, you know that I've repeatedly promised a show on the moon. Um, and I sort of went over some of the parts of a truly horrible movie that was perfectly wonderful for me called Moonfall, which sort of addressed some of those things in a campy, awful way, but nevertheless, they were mentioned. Um, and uh, so what we're going to do with Matt is we're going to have a show about the moon. But Matt, the the deal I always make with Matt is it's going to be fact and science based. And if there's any myths and legends and lore, uh, we'll explore them. But if if he uh, has the information to debunk them, debunk away. And so I I think we should probably just start with an overview of, you know, the the moon's dimensions, its distance from Earth and sun and things like that. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, the moon is rather interestingly it is the uh it dwarfs uh just about every other satellite in the solar system and those that it's not bigger than it is certainly more massive than Hmm. and i was interested to find that because uh of its low gravity and yeah so um to to break uh, the numbers down it's uh it's about 27 percent the the um diameter of earth so about, yeah, 27% the size. In terms of its mass, it's uh, a little over 1%. So juggle that however you like there. But uh, And then, yeah, it's also got a lower density overall. So it's like there's uh, plenty of material there. 
It's not as densely packed as Earth is, and so the gravity is quite low. Roughly, um, I believe, 16%. Let me check that. Yeah, 16.5%. So, so it's big, there, but not dense, not much gravity. Yeah. And, um, and, and of course, it's extremely, extremely cold. And uh, this is due to the fact that it's an airless body. And so there's, uh, it, it presents tremendous opportunities to learn about other bodies in our solar system that also have no atmosphere to speak of. And, uh, and yeah, which go through these really extreme variations in temperature. Um, yeah, let me pull those up just next year. Yeah. So basically, if you were, um, if you're standing outside on the moon and uh, it's nightfall, so you're, you're, you're getting no natural light, um, you would be, temperatures would, oh, you do in turn, don't you? Yeah, U.S. Okay, well then, uh, I'm going to need to convert that, but it uh, shouldn't be too hard. So, the average temperature on the moon is about uh, minus 10 uh, Fahrenheit. Um, however, like I said, that's the average. If you're standing in, uh, in the shade, basically, um, it's about two, minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. But yes, if you happen to be standing there when the sun hit you, it would be over 240. So, but of course, it's like this is um, in any heat there, um, it, it would be uh, the sun's direct energy on you there. It would be enough to just uh, irradiate you and cook you alive. But because the moon is airless, it's like, yeah, the, uh, the temperature on the ground may be enough to burn your feet off, but um up, up by your head your head would have frozen a long time ago so um the bottom line is you can't live on the surface of the moon so any any ideas of uh, pretenses to moon people well they'd have to live underground okay well that that leads to something interesting i i joked about a little bit earlier but there was recently an article that said that they they found these tubes underground caves uh that were sort of almost a comfortable temperature for people to live in. Um, mm -hmm. How were those formed? We know that the moon is not particularly dense. Uh, I, you know, normally something like that is caused by water or lava. Um, is, I think you previously told us there is water on the moon or at least ice, but uh, how are these formed? And is it water-based, lava-based, or is it just one of those mysteries? It's lava-based, definitely. Um, and uh, astronomers figured that out um, thanks to just, you know, orbital images and uh, that go back decades. They saw that, yeah, where, wherever these ancient, ancient volcanoes were, um, which have uh, since become completely extinct, we're talking billions of years ago, shortly after the moon formed. Um, but uh, yeah, lava tubes were created expanding outwards in, in all directions and some of them um, are still intact others collapsed and and scientists were able to recognize these because we have these same things on earth and it's like yeah where where lava once uh, came through this uh, conduit there it carved out a path and once everything cooled down solidified some of these uh, left massive cave systems and other ones just yeah the sort of the roof caved in on them. Um, but in other places, the only uh, spot of the roof caved in, and that created what uh, 
astronomers call skylights. And so knowing that they're there and knowing that they're accessible through these skylights, yeah, there's been a lot of interest into we should go and explore these. And if ever we were to colonize there um, or settle is the nicer, uh, less baggagey uh, way of saying it. Um, yeah, if ever we were to create settlements on the moon, these tubes would be an ideal place because, yeah, they are estimated to be very spacious, large enough to fit a whole city. Wow. Um, yeah, and the temperatures are, are mild in there, um, certainly compared to the surface. So, some even uh, reaching, yeah, uh, what we, we'd consider balmy. Um, the only... The, the only really be challenging part is that, well, you have to pressurize them, too, because we need to be able to breathe in there. Right. And so, but that, too, it's like if you just uh, establish where you want to build your settlement and establish walls on either side of it, you can build in there, you can pressurize it, you know, put some airlocks on, and then you can go out exploring and maybe establish ones in other places. What yeah, is so. the temperature range? You said that it could be balmy. Uh, so what would be the low and what would be the approximate high? I'm not going to hold you to this exactly, but um, uh, uh, yeah. in Fahrenheit, don't forget Fahrenheit. Yeah. Um, I'm not actually sure. I don't really have that uh, on hand, but um, it really, it does depend. Um, so well, let's see, in, in Celsius, yeah, just... Um, Close to freezing on the lower end and just a few degrees above. So, and in terms of Fahrenheit there, um, what's freezing? 32. 32. So, yeah, be about, uh, yeah, about uh, 30, 33 to 43 degrees in there. Okay. So, no matter what, no matter what, pretty cold. But, you know, we're talking about the lunar environment. That is absolutely uh, that, is, that is wonderful. That's like having central heating compared to what you experience on the lunar surface, right? Well, well sure. But also uh, once you put uh, airlocks or whatever, you could adjust the temperature. But I was thinking that uh, in, oh, the, yeah. in the prep stage, you could store food and stuff down there in the cold areas. You could keep meat and, and freeze milk and vegetables and things if you wanted to. I mean, I know that they oh, have yeah. powdered foods and whatever, but you could, uh, you know, anything that you can put in a fridge, you, you can... You, you can put in there and, uh, and you know, basically stockpile the place. And there's probably uh, mm -hmm. other equipment you can put in there that's not as cold sensitive as, say, a human body is. Um, yeah. So that, that, that is really interesting. Um, so there were volcanoes. They're long dormant. Is there no sign of any of the volcanism or is are there earthquakes? Are there underground rivulets? I mean, or is it really just a dead rock there, there actually is some geological activity that's still happening and then the scientists uh had speculated before that no mars is dead but it not mars right the moon is dead um that uh the only moon quakes that it had uh would be were due to the surface uh um, expanding and contracting due to temperature differences, but they've since found out that in fact it does get a, 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 some mild tremors from time to time, so it's not totally dead. Um, there's also well, it gets hit by uh, by asteroids and uh, micrometeoroids and, and such all the time, 
they, these don't burn up in the atmosphere because there's none. So they just sort of slam down on the surface, um, mostly on the far side. And uh, yeah, that sends shock waves through the, the moon as well. So that's another cause. So there, there would be some mostly gentle seismic activity. And that's, that's something that, that, yeah, people living and working there would notice, and they could get to study it, too. It would be really interesting. Does the moon revolve on, on its own axis, or does it just orbit the Earth? It just orbits the Earth. Uh, well, no, actually, the, uh, it, it experiences what is known as tidal, uh, tidal locking. Mm -hmm. So it rotates very slowly on its axis, but that is um, very uh, absolutely coordinated with its uh, orbit around Earth. So as a result, one side is constantly facing it, and we see this with a lot of... Uh, of uh, celestial bodies there that orbit um, larger bodies, um, and uh, it, it causes their rotations uh, to to slow down to the point where yeah, one side will constantly be facing towards uh, either the sun uh, or uh, their whatever parent body that they're orbiting. So there's more of and, a tidal uh, wobble than an orbit, or, or I'm sorry, than a revolution. Yeah. And it, it, it all comes down to it, it is at a distance where uh, gravitationally it's very dominated by the Earth. But, um, yeah, at the same time, Earth is uh, certainly very much affected by the moon itself. And maybe even in ways that, that go right to why Earth is habitable. But that's that's a big one. I think I'll, I'll, think I'll save that for uh, later. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because there are a lot of things I've read about the moon and and you can only describe them as astronomical. Of course, astronomical is pretty much the definition of space. So uh, where, where else should something be astronomical other than in, in actual space? But, okay, so tell me if this is true or not, that there's very odd synergy or equilibrium in the proportions of moon to earth and moon to sun, and that that has an impact on the tides, which maybe that you were talking about, but also makes it the exact right size for there to be total eclipses. Is am I am I saying anything that you recognize? Uh, well, yeah, I mean you you are correct about the eclipses. Um, in terms of mass distribution or mass differences, uh, that's uh, yeah, I haven't really heard that one. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's orbit from us and our orbit from the sun is such that uh, that yeah, it, it can lead to a um, if you're living certainly around the equator, it can lead to a perfectly uh, a solar eclipse there where it just manages to block out the light from the sun just right. But if you uh, if you look further north, like I do, or further south, yeah, that's that's not really a luxury you get during a solar eclipse. You're going to see a sliver of sun and uh, yeah, and I can tell you that I, I actually have uh, witnessed that personally, and it was really ominous. And it, uh, it got very dark outside, or just relative to the sunshine. It got cooler, and we had a, an instrument so that we could look at the eclipse without burning our retinas. And uh, yeah, and, and we got to see that. There, there's a sliver of, of sun from behind the moon. That's why it's still technically daylight out, but... Yeah, the temperature and the light dropped, and we all felt like this. Maybe this is why ancient people got so scared when this happened. This, this feels yeah. scary. 
Well, sure. Yeah, the animals started getting uh, were pretty antsy too. Um, yeah. In terms of the rest, though, it's interesting, and I'm going to have to look that up because there are a lot of questions as to you know why the moon is um, the size and mass that it is relative to Earth, and how exactly that what or what exactly that tells us about its formation. And um, yeah, the best uh, the best theory astronomers have it's the most widely accepted one is that uh, Earth back when it had just finished forming, so roughly four and a half billion years ago, it was hit by a another uh, planetoid about the size of Mars, which they've uh, named Thea, and that would have been kicked out of um, you know further out, out of the solar system it was kicked out of its orbit. It was heading towards the sun. Uh, there was a lot of this going on apparently during these early days, um, and so that uh, the impact it slammed into Earth. It threw up uh, all kinds of material. In fact, most of Earth and Thea were kind of just obliterated into space. But they were so hot and molten, they then coalesced back again. And yeah, that so the moon formed an orbit of Earth, and it slowly. It slowly retreated outwards to its current orbit, and that's yeah. That all started around four and a half million billion years ago, and and yeah, the the current arrangement that we have now it allowed us to both settle into our our rotation and our orbits, and and uh, it has uh, yeah. The moon itself has actually slowed Earth down. So sounds a little bit like uh, chaos and Gaia, or whatever. I'm not sure if I have the. Uh the names correct in the old uh, proto mythology Greek, but anyway, there's a mm -hmm. whole bunch of uh, oh yeah, it, it's it's yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's sort of weird how uh, like well I guess you can see what you want to see, but if you, you you look at enough sort of ancient stories and science, they mm -hmm. they, they they start to blend a little bit. Um, oh yeah, yeah, cool. I, it is cool. I I I I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, you said something about the the far side of the moon. I assume that's what we call the dark side of the moon. Pink Floyd has a yeah. fabulous album called Dark Side of the Moon. If you've mm -hmm. never listened to it, you're an idiot. Get off the show. Never listen to me again. No, oh, yeah. no listen, listen, listen to Dark Side of the Moon. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but it's getting hit with all these meteors and, and uh, uh, asteroids or whatever. And I, I don't know how often that is or whatever. But... If that's where we're going to have the bases from which other spacecraft are going to be taken off, I imagine that's a pretty good concern. Are we going to have like air defense systems? Uh, no, no. Um, what we will have, uh, in all likelihood, is yes, the uh, the uh, facilities will, um, and yeah, well, advanced warning is definitely going to be there, right? It's like we we have objects inbound. We know where they're going to land, and the earliest uh, bases that have been proposed there, like the um, uh, Artemis Base Camp, which astronauts are going to rely on there um, for a while, it's mobile, so you can pick it up, put it down, um, shift around, but when long-term uh, settlements are built there, or, or long-term bases, um, yeah, the idea is to basically use the, the ground as shielding as much as possible, so Kind of like the old, our, the old uh, artillery um, um, etiquette, right? If you uh, if you know you're going to be shelled, dig into the ground and don't yeah, 
build your forts also into the ground. Yep, I hate to sound cold and callous, but I wasn't really thinking so much about the people themselves. I figured they'd go down into bunkers or whatever. I didn't know that they would be mobile, though. You better have a really good early defense system because I can't imagine these vehicles move very quickly. I'm, I'm picturing, you know, sort of like nomadic tribes with, you know, where they pack their, their girts and teepees and drag them along. But um, I'm thinking more about the launch pads and the rockets that are there and replacing those. And I, I'm sorry to seem cold and callous, but in the age of exploration discovery, the stuff usually, I mean, you know, they say the captain goes down with the ship and that's sort of because the ship is considered, you know, pretty important. Um, I, I, you know, the, the, the stuff is often more important than, than the lives, uh, right or wrong, moral or amoral. But, um, I mean, is there a plan just to keep rebuilding platforms and rockets or shuttles or whatever, the, you know, the plan is? Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, of unresolved. Um, I mean, State Farm isn't covering that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, maintenance is definitely going to be an issue there, and it would be robotic, mostly. Um, so, yeah, basically, human lives would not be sacrificed here, but uh, you have the, Even the, better. the 3D printers that would be able to go out there, scoop up uh, the moon dust, and turn it into, you know, paving and building materials and rebuild the landing strips there or the landing pads if they got damaged. Um, and the thing of it is too, it's like, yeah, the moon has a lot of impacts relative to what we experience here on earth, but it's over a very vast surface area. And yeah, it's, uh, how often these would affect operations on the surface. It's like, well, the, yeah, the risk is pretty negligible. In fact, the, the bigger risk is those tiny little micrometeoroids and uh, just small, fine particles that are shooting down. Uh, that would be worse. And but again, advanced warning is a thing, right? The astronauts will will have uh, uh, they will have uh, um, warnings in advance saying that yes, there's going to be. Uh, uh, there's going to be small debris raining down in this area, so you know, get undercover and get back within your vehicle. There, you know, your your pressurized, uh, tough skin vehicle, and, or yeah, get back in your settlements underground. And um, yeah, and, and of course, we have all kinds of satellites that operate around the moon, and uh, they uh, yeah, they don't, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they don't have, they don't deal with uh, a lot of damage from anything raining down. So so between like, the the, safe. So the, between the small uh, chances of there being impact and the moon and 3D printers being, being basically a self-sustainable environment that you can keep rebuilding those things, there'll be some downtime. Uh, it'd be fun to get the sort of the little robots with like Spider-Man webs to make a sort of a, you know, Spider-Man shields to catch the microparticles. Um, but, uh, okay, so that answers that. Um so you mentioned Artemis. I think this is very timely because we're recording this on August 20th. I don't know exactly when I'll drop. The, I'm sorry, August 24th. I don't know exactly when I'm going to drop the show, but apparently the artist mission has been greenlit August 29th, 2022. Um, and obviously weather and things like that can, can always play a factor. But assuming that it goes up, what is the Artemis mission? Obviously Artemis, well, not obviously, but for those listeners of Guardian Doom or those who recognized the name Artemis was a, a Greek goddess. I believe that 
She was the goddess of the hunt and the moon. Um, so, uh, so yeah, what's Artemis' mission and what's its goals and what's happening? Yeah. Well, the Artemis One mission is, uh, is going to be an uncrewed one. So you're going to, we're going to see the, um, the space launch system, the SLS, that big giant, uh, orange and silver rocket. Um, it's going to launch an Apollo, um, sorry, a, uh, um, Orion spacecraft, um, which is built on the same, on the same principles as the, um, as the Apollo capsules. Um, and, um, yeah, it's going to then send that on a trajectory that's going to take it around the moon and out to a distant lunar orbit, farther than any spacecraft has ever been before, and then it's going to come home. And this is going to test and validate all the all the systems that are involved. Um, but it's going to be happening without crew, mainly because you know this is this is how they get the uh, the bugs out. It's how they work out all the kinks beforehand. Um, and so. Let me see see what the dates here are. So yeah, Artemis One, yeah, is going to be taking place uh, next week. Um, as for the rest, the Artemis Two mission, I believe, is scheduled for twenty twenty three, tentatively. No, sorry, May twenty twenty four, and that will involve a crewed mission ar- around the moon, but they oh. won't land. Oh. So that, that will be the human rated space flight to once again test everything and get the experience and Artemis 3 is currently scheduled for 2025 although yeah the exact date is uh, yet to be determined um, and uh, yeah that is going to be where the uh, astronauts land on the moon okay. for the first time since the Apollo era so well, that will be surely a media media frenzy well fingers crossed they all go well because I'm sure that the Artemis 3 mission is contingent upon the success of both 1 and 2 um, yes Okay, um, I'm going to ask you to dig around your magic computer there to look at some of those proportions. I think it's like 400 to one, but in the meantime, uh, I have one general question, which doesn't is, is not unique to the moon, but does apply. So, and hopefully you know the answer to it. And then we're gonna do some myths and debunking if you can. Um, but the first, an- the first question is, what is the difference between an occultation and an, and an eclipse. Oh, um, well. Let me try. I, I think that all eclipses are occultations, but not all occultations are uh, eclipses. Yeah, well, yeah, an occultation is when one thing passes in front of another um, and obscures the thing that you're trying to see beyond it. Um, yeah, and um, if... Yeah, if uh, my uh, sources here are correct, that um, yeah, the uh, it is if it if and when a shadow is cast upon the observer, that is an eclipse. So to us, that's when yeah, when the um, the sun is eclipsed by the moon, and we as a result uh, start feeling things are getting shadier down here and colder. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, yeah, you are correct in fact because any any passing of an object in, in front of another object would be called a, an occultation or a transit is another one there and that's actually a very interesting way in which we look for uh, exoplanets so if something is behind um, us and we cast a shadow upon the moon it's not an eclipse even though the moon is blocked or you know whatever I don't know what could be behind us to cast a shadow on oh, to cover the sun probably nothing but um, yeah 
Uh, yeah, if and when uh, people are on the moon for, for long duration stays, and uh, yeah, Earth casts a shadow on them, they will be experiencing an eclipse, uh, mainly because, uh, yeah, they're, they're, um, they're, depending on where they are, they will have uh, an interesting time seeing the sun, seeing clear to the sun, and that is something they want to avoid, too. You don't want to be standing on the surface where the sun is going to get you. <laughs> right. So, yeah, in fact, um, all the plans for establishing bases on the moon, say, let's build in the uh, South Pole-Aitken Basin, and it's that, that basin is, is mainly on the far side of the moon, but um, the part of it that grabs the South Pole, uh, that's where the bases, uh, where, where all the planners want to put their, their bases, and it's like, yes, because there's the ice there, there's the permanently shadowed craters and if you build down into there and you can see over the the edge of the crater um towards earth you're it's it's going to be constantly in view it's just going to be sort of line of sights for communication yeah, it's, and stuff. yeah it's going to be moving back and forth in the sky there if, if you had like a time-lapse camera and could speed it up that's what it would look like um but How yeah any other if, if you could look out the other side there, and it's like, yeah, you could see to the sun, but uh, again, you'd want to send a robot or something to do that because see, looking at the sun on the surface of the moon would uh, destroy Blind. your eyeballs. Yeah. How far will the launch pads be from the main base? Uh, if the purpose is to leverage being on the far side of the moon to be closer to, um, you know, uh, you know, wherever you're shooting your, your ships to or whatever. Um, does it matter if they're closer to the equator versus the pole? Or it doesn't matter because the practicality of being close to the South Pole out, outweighs, you know, whatever small benefit you might get from, you know, I guess that mathematical benefit in, in angle or degrees. I'm not really sure what the correct word is, but, um, you know, to, to shoot your shot at a, a maximum trajectory, uh, the advantage is outweighed by being in some place that's, uh, you know, on the South Pole to, you know, I guess there's several advantage there, mitigation of uh, projectiles and, and uh, avoidance of, you know, I guess you can more easily escape the harshest rays of the sun, et cetera. Yeah. Well, um, let me explain it this way. On Earth, right, um, it... Uh, the closer you are to the equator, the easier it is to launch payloads of people into space because, yeah, we're, we're a flattened sphere and, uh, yeah, launching from the poles is actually uh, is harder. Um, it, it requires more energy, more boost, uh, and it can be done, but why would you want to, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, the moon, um, much the same could be true. Uh, launching from the equator could, in fact, be... Uh, more uh, cost effective in terms of how much energy you need to do it but since the gravity is as low as it is it's cost effective to launch anywhere so yeah it's like well then let's let's have our landing pads near nearer to the bases down in around the south pole um and uh yeah so that's where everything is going to ultimately need to land and take off from to, in order to deliver people and supplies and it's it's going to be cheap to do that no matter what the the launching not so much uh, the receiving um but at the same time you need to think of uh, dust mitigation so uh, i've seen some very interesting ideas so it's like the launch pads cannot be that close to the settlement or 
Otherwise, you need to, to build them in such a way that any dust that they scatter is going to be contained. And uh, so... So what, yeah, like an upside-down bowl or something? Uh, yeah, well, that's pretty close to uh, to what, uh, what, I, what I saw there with one design study. It's that they, they said that, yes, build it into a sort of a, yeah, a uh, concave uh, bowl-like thing, you know, the landing pads at the very bottom there where everything's nice and perfectly flat and the walls slope upwards and even kind of, uh, they've got a bit of a, a lip on them so that any dust just sort of shoots up against the walls and as it tries to climb the, the this uh, the bowl cut walls, it then hits a, a barrier up top and then just settles back down. And yeah, and then of course you got to sort of sweep it up or, or suck it away but robot workers can do that too and that's like that there is a, a good feed stock in case you need to reinforce anything or repair anything from, from uh, rockets uh, taking off and landing sounds good okay uh-huh. well well i understand and especially since the diameter since the moon is uh, uh only 27 percent the size of the earth uh, the, the diameter or you know is obviously you know we're talking a few thousand miles, which is negligible in, in terms of these journeys. The moon, they yeah. say, is three days away from the Earth. What was it like 225,000 miles? Is that right? Something like that? Uh, um, 260,000. Uh, we're doing imperial again here. Um, <laughs> I forget. Um, you can use kilometers. You can, you can do kilometers. We, we know that kilometers are roughly uh, somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of a mile. Yeah. Yeah, so so on average, it's uh, yeah, th- about three hundred eighty-four thousand four hundred kilometers. So, if anyone wants to do the conversion there, so I, I actually think you were uh, very accurate there. You said two hundred fifty thousand miles, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I know that yeah, it varies. Uh, you know, yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's about right. And yeah, and it took the Apollo missions about three days to get there, um, and it will take a comparable amount of time for us to. Um, for the um, uh, the Artemis missions to get there, and uh, yeah, it's like if you add in return trip and reconnoitering, all the Apollo missions really um, they didn't last much longer than a week. Um, the goal this time, though, and in fact, yeah, the Artemis threes are not going to last that much longer than a week either. But the goal is, of course, to build all the necessary stuff there on the moon um, in order to be able to stay there for longer periods and do more research. And that's, yeah, that, that is something that NASA has sort of been sacrificing initially just to, to meet the deadline that was sort of imposed on them. And that's, that's a whole other thing, right? The, the Artemis plan as it is has evolved considerably since it was, since it was first proposed before it was named Artemis. And yeah, not all the decisions that, that were made were, really uh, were, were particularly beneficial to the plan. There was a lot of sort of short-sighted and downright stupid decisions made. Oh, people, what can you do with them? Um, yeah. Are we sure that there's nothing living in the ice there? And is there any liquid water? And same question. Uh, yeah, there's no liquid water. No, all, the only ice that's on Mars there is moon frozen is uh, is frozen solid there and it lies in the shadowed areas there is um water in in moon dust itself which um 
in this case, it, it, it's, it's the result of solar wind hitting the surface and interacting with it, right? Hydrogen molecules interacting with uh, elemental oxygen and, uh, yeah, and, and uh, moon rocks that were brought back um, by the Apollo missions, yeah, they, they found that. And that was, uh, that was one of the first clues that, yes, in fact, there's water on the moon. They didn't, they didn't really believe it at first. They thought, oh, that must be contamination. There's no way. But then, yeah, as they, as they learn more about, uh, from the study of these rocks um, and uh, subsequent missions that have been up there and observe more of it, they, they realize, no, in fact, there is two sources of water on the moon. Uh, one is uh, the water that gets into the regolith crystals there, and you can't really, you can't really use it. Um, it's just, you know, really, really, really negligible amounts and trapped in a crystalline, crystalline structure. Um, but there's also plentiful ice in the craters that are permanently shadowed. So, and, and the reason that survives there is like, well, any ice that is exposed to sunlight is going to immediately sublimate, right? It won't even melt. It'll just evaporate very rapidly and be lost to space. But anything that's, that, that landed in those craters is safe. And where that came from was a, an interesting question. And, and what uh, the, the, all the evidence points towards that, yeah, water was distributed to the moon, same as Mercury and Mars Earth. And uh, billions of years ago, when the solar system was still forming and it was a very dynamic and chaotic place, and a lot of objects were being kicked out of the outer solar system. Um, asteroids and comets and so forth that had uh, large supplies of water ice in them and where they crashed, yeah, that's, that's how water got distributed around. And so on, on airless bodies like the Moon and Mercury, the only places where it would have survived are in the polar regions and in the, in the craters that are there. So that's, that's the main reason why, yeah, we want to build... Uh, uh, we want to build uh, uh, the bases there. As for life, um, my speculation aside there, yeah, it's like, well, no life can exist on the surface. We know that much. Could anything be exist in the ice itself, like bacteria? Mm -hmm. um, chances are no. It would not have uh, had, uh, like, bacteria would not have had time to form or evolve in, in, uh, in, in the ice as it was being distributed there, but there could be amino acids, so building blocks could be there. We're seeing a lot of evidence that, yeah, asteroids uh, and comets carry that all, all the time, even even lots of them, complex okay. ones. Well, we better send and a robot to go there first, not John Hurt. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah, and, and it's like, yeah, this is uh, one of the things that lunar exploration is really going to help reveal. It's like, so we know it's, a, it's a, almost a certainty that water was distributed this way in the early solar system by... You know, space rocks, um, but it, it's it's starting to look a lot like um, life itself was distributed through, or the building blocks of it was distributed throughout the uh, solar system by space rocks. Ah, panspermia, one of my favorite words. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and one of the most fun concepts that's out there that can be played with, but that's neither here nor there. But, but it is a nice transition into some debunking, or maybe bunking, who knows. So, I, I assume this one is, I'm going to give you two easy ones first. Uh, is there any chance that the earth is artificial and was placed there purposefully to, to enable 
life on earth and and i'm not asking you for the of course there's some chance of anything in a you know out of seven zillion is is there any realistic chance uh, of uh, that you, you mean the moon the moon's artificial right the the, the moon was yeah. either artif it's either artificial in and of itself or it yeah. was placed there by some sort of uh divine or or superior intelligence to help the uh petri dish that is earth uh, allow, allow life to yeah. flourish or not. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, well, you're right. Anything is possible, but, um, I'd say bloody unlikely in this case, because the one thing that we've noticed about, um, the moon and earth, and this was because of the, uh, the Apollo missions, and the rocks they brought back is they are so very similar in composition. So that's why, scientists started theorizing that, yeah, it's like the Earth and the Moon formed together at some point in the distant past, and working over time, you know, modeling and all that stuff, the, the impact hypothesis really won out. It's like, yeah, okay, so this formed because of an impact. Now, did somebody shoot that impact at us in the hopes of forming a moon, like a super advanced species that, you know, actually had that kind of knowledge, foresight, and wisdom um, they knew they knew that a moon would, um, and, and yeah, this is how the moon's related to life, right? Uh, right. You know, picture the yeah. celestials from the Eternals. You know, so. yeah. It's like, is it possible uh, some of them that something like that happened? Well, it's like, well, of course, sure, it's possible. Uh, very, 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 very far fetched or remote, but um, you know, it's uh, well, yeah, like you said, I'm a science fiction writer, so I. Right. An idea like that is intriguing to me. I'm not treating it as a serious possibility, but I, I would I would never just say no, it couldn't have happened. No, no, it's really cool. Well, as they and, say in yeah. Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly, yeah. So the moon, not artificial and not hollow. Not hollow, no, definitely not. It, it has a, um, it like, yeah, it's similar in composition to Earth, and it's like, yeah, so it's metals um, really predominantly sunk down into the center. And it, uh, yeah, it's got a, a, a core that is iron nickel. And at one time, in fact, um, when back when it was geologically active, uh, scientists have determined that, yeah, the moon would have had a magnetic um, field like earth does. Um, but of course the interior cooled and that, and, and the internal, you know, dynamo action there in the core, like we have here on Earth, where the inner core is solid, but the outer core is liquid and loose around it, that would have, that was completely shut down. So the moon's magnetic field disappeared. Any primordial atmosphere would have had disappeared. But its presence in orbit of Earth um, has kept, has helped keep our dynamo action in our core going. Excellent. Because, yeah, it's like the moon's gravitational pull makes sure that our core keeps revolving in the opposite direction of Earth's rotation. Uh, liquid metal surrounded by solid metal, and that, that puts out this big old magnetic field that keeps it safe. So, and yeah. the tides also, so that they're not uh, crazy out of hand. We're not constantly dealing with thousand-foot tidal waves or something, something to that effect. Yeah, it keeps the tides predictable, basically, yeah. Like the moon's on this side of the planet, the water of the tide is high. You know, if on the other side, the tide will be low. And yeah, we all all life 
months too, right? And, and much in much like they have with the seasons and so forth. So yeah, the the moon is very linked to life on Earth and uh, it, its patterns. So. Right. Not exactly so moon related, but in our story, yeah. it sort of is. Is yeah. part of Thea what they theorize to be that piece of a planet that's that's sort of somewhere in the Earth's core? Oh, um, well, again, I, I don't I don't believe I've heard this uh, theory there, but I, yeah, I do know that yeah, um, Thea's material uh, would be would have been retained by Earth and the Moon. So yeah, we still have some of her with us. Ah, uh, yeah, well, that's sweet. And, yeah. It's, uh, I'm you know, sentimental. Actually, I'm cosmically sentimental. <laughs> yeah. I just thought of a weird comparison there. It's like, you know, if we had a, a, a twin in utero that uh, we absorbed, but that's gross. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that there's been horror movies uh, exactly about that. Um, yeah. Okay. I've been waiting on this one. I know you know it's coming. Uh-huh. The, the moon landing was fake. Absolutely not. And, well, I, I can tell you why. Uh, there's actually some wonderful, wonderful videos that, um, well, my boss has, has made one. Um, uh, actually, I think he's made a couple. And it's, um, well, debunking the claims, debunking the basis of these claims, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah, the, the footprints look different or the uh, flag wasn't moving. I, I don't really recall all the bullet points, but it's like, it is actually very easy to explain these various hoax theories there, hoax points. Um, just off the top of my head, I mentioned the, the boot prints, and it's like, um, yeah, those, you, you, you claim that uh, Neil Armstrong wasn't wearing that pattern of boot, but we see these boot prints. It's like, yeah, that's because that's Buzz Aldrin's footprints. You know, you look at his boots, which were photographed, they have that pattern. And yeah, so. It was just a case of walking over somebody else's tracks, basically. Um, but the um, the easiest way to debunk this is you have an organization that um, finished over the course of several years. They claimed to put 12 astronauts on the moon. Uh, we know who all these people are. They all died of natural causes at the end of their lives. Um there were literally thousands of witnesses to everything that went on in the program and all that. Now, to do all of that, to fake all of that, right, um, would have required an effort so titanic it would have actually been easier to build a space program and go to the moon, right? How do you get thousands of people to, to maintain a conspiracy for over 50 years and not one of them ever cracked or said anything. No documents were leaked. Nothing was put out there that would validate any of these claims. It's like, that is not possible. Nobody is that powerful or that disciplined, right? What if they put it up is, a sign at the door that said, no gossipers allowed? <laughs> well, yeah, that would have definitely, I mean, in any government conspiracy, right? That That's definitely the case there. It's like people, right. nobody... Nobody goes talking to the press, but somebody always does. There's, there's always a leaker, always a, um, sometimes there's multiple ones. And it's like, we can threaten everybody, but unless we have a way of knowing exactly who said what and when to whom, well, we, we can't do anything about it. And if they already leak the information, well, the cat's out of the bag. And if they die now, it looks suspicious. 
and but this is the stuff conspiracy theories are built on and i've heard so many versions of these um that have nothing to do with the moon but it's like oh this person died and they worked for somebody way back when ergo that person was killed to cover up something <laughs> right. i yeah, have, i have heard that there were personnel on several continents in several countries and that the numbers either it's either in the tens of thousands or somehow or hundreds of thousands of people that were involved in this that have all uh, kept silent. Okay, so yeah. uh, now something about the flag. I, I if I if I read something or saw something on one of the debunking shows, the, the flag itself was not a regular flag. That it was the, the fabric was treated in some way so that it would mm-hmm. either simulate the the the, the look of of the wind or that it would remain stiff without there being any sort of wind or breeze to keep it up. It was, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's, that is, uh, um, I was trying to remember what the point of it was. It's like, yes, the, the flag was rigid, but kind of rippled and it stayed that way. And it's like, this is, yeah, this is why they did that. Had they brought a, a regular flag to the moon, um, there would have been no wind to keep it up. And the low gravity would mean that it would hang, and sort of just slowly, slowly move there in response to whatever agitation, but it, it wouldn't have been up. Right, and that would be so, no deterrent yeah. to Marvin Martian. I'm sorry? That would be no deterrent to Marvin Martian, who uh, yeah, yeah. likes to fly around yeah. planting the flag of Mars wherever he goes. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah, the bottom line is with, um, yeah, none of the criticisms or uh, yeah, the so-called evidence that the the hoax theory come down to are uh, defensible. Really, they they're easily disproved. But you know, yeah, above all, it's like nobody could have pulled off a hoax like this. Not without yeah. I mean, the spending alone on that it, it would have dwarfed the actual Artemis program. And yeah, and of course, I'd, I'd have similar questions for the hoax theory. It's like, well, does that mean the Mercury program was a hoax too, or did we actually send? astronauts to space the soviets also fake all of their achievements you know and and then came gemini also fake i mean that's (laughs) exactly yeah how far how deep does this go and yeah and yeah it's a simple occam's razor really it's starting to get a little bit like the naked gun where priscilla presley said uh I didn't enjoy sex. And then Frank Trapper goes, I faked all my orgasms. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. What about the missing two minutes of audio? People make a lot about that. Um, Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to look into that one there. Um, Because depending on, on where in the mission that happened, uh, that would be very much attributable to just, um, the fact that, well, yeah, it is difficult to maintain communications with missions that are that deep into space if they're passing behind another object. Um, for example, missions that are sent up there now um, to investigate the far side of the moon, they need a relay, and you need uh, you need a satellite relay to to make your communications heard. And um, yeah, in turn, I, I do have to. Well, while you're looking that up, also look up the corollary to this, which is uh, that that there's some talk that that during the audio that Neil Armstrong, I believe, was talking to someone in Houston Control about tracking an alien or an alien vessel. Uh Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
conspiracy theory like that. Um, it's that, well, if we have missing audio, then uh, we can say whatever we want happened in that time, right? Um, so he never said yeah. anything about that. They're just saying that's what he must have been talking about during this, you know, this missing two minutes and 20 seconds or whatever it actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, I would say that it's, uh, without knowing all the uh, details of that talking point there, it's that, well, there are, in every space mission, there are periods in which you don't hear from the mission for certain spaces of time because they are, you know, re-entering the atmosphere is, is the main one there. The, uh, uh, you know, and also going to space, there's, there's periods like that too. And those are, yeah, those are the minutes of terror as they are often referred to. So, yeah, I'd say there's, there's no real mystery there and that, that too can be easily explained. Um, and uh, yeah, and and to say to, to further compound that by saying that oh yeah they, they saw aliens in those moments it's like okay you're talking this is a lovely science fiction thread here and I, I remember one of the Transformers movies did something like that there's like during the Dark, the minutes Dark yeah, Side of the Moon during, <laughs> it was called yes exactly yeah it's like during the minutes where we couldn't hear from them uh, NASA deliberately turned off the audio and these guys went and investigated a crashed uh, Transformer ship. Right. Well, it's you like, don't want to oh, find yeah. Starscream or Megatron or whoever it was that they found, you know, all frozen yeah. there. Um, yeah. It's like, it's like I, yeah, no, they didn't shut down the audio. This was just a brief window where they couldn't communicate and then they all, you know, breathed a collective sigh of relief and, and were happy when, you know, the transmission started coming in, in again. And that's, yeah, every mission always ends with that, with the few minutes of silent panic, where it's like, okay, the capsule's into the atmosphere, now we're not hearing, now we're not hearing, we're just waiting, 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 and then, once they landed, splashdown, yay! It's like, okay, get out there and grab them, you know, we, we know they're not dead. What about, yeah. what about the Nazis got to the moon in the 40s? Yeah, I'm sorry, what? What about the Nazis got to the moon in the 40s? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. And I can tell you why. Um, for one, uh, the Nazis were, uh, they were dedicating every resource they had to um, the war, not space exploration at all. The developments they made in terms of their V-2 rockets were very impressive, but they they achieved nothing that uh, they, they couldn't build a, a rocket that could break free of, uh, of Earth's gravity and get into long enough to get into low earth orbit, right? Everything that they sent up went to, um, was uh, beneath the Kármán line, so less than 100 kilometers or 62 miles up. And that, that puts you in sub-orbit, and technically, you know, if you see that, you're, you are technically going to space. Um, but they couldn't do it. So for them to have built a, a rocket that could have made that journey um, with people... To do all that and then not tell anyone about it, right? It would have been a tremendous waste of resources at a time when they didn't have it. They didn't have the technology. If they did, the war would have turned out very differently because they would have had, basically, uh, they, they would have been able to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's, that's you know, a, a rocket that's needed to get to the moon is uh, would have multiple stages and such, a, whereas a ballistic missile is a lot easier. It's like, it, uh, yeah, it reaches uh, up into technically space and 
travels halfway around the world and then lands and explodes on the other side. So, yeah, it's just, it's fundamentally impossible to think that that could have happened. And more to the point, Werner von Braun, right, the famous Nazi rocket scientist who the U.S. recruited and all of his colleagues, plus the, the individuals the Soviets grabbed, it's like, um, yeah, how come you guys uh, didn't know about this, you know? Werner, you're, even before he was recruited by NASA, he was writing books about um, possible missions to, to the moon, to Mars, and so forth, and it all involved concepts that no one really um, had, no one really had, uh, had, had worked with in anything other than theory. So, yeah. It's like, well, if you could overlook uh, the whole being a Nazi thing, I think it was yeah. Werner von Braun, or maybe it was his brother Otto, but one of them wrote a book called Occasionally We Hit London um, <laughs> about their missiles. That uh, Occasionally they hit what they wanted to. Um, yeah. so, uh, sort of a, uh, you know, I, I guess you'd call that a sarcastic sense of humor, but a little self, bit of self-deprecation there. Um, yeah. I'm sort of out of myths that I can think of offhand, but I'm sure you've come across other myths or things that you would like to debunk. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. What else have I learned? Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, I have heard the argument made. This is, this goes back to the moon landing hoax again it's like well how is it we managed to do it back then but we haven't been able to do it since and i was like well that is that is some very faulty logic there um but it does actually it's like well asked another way it's a pretty it's a it's a good question why haven't we been back since it's like well to get to the moon nasa had to be created they needed a funding that um reached uh, uh, a a large chunk of, of the, the government's uh, gross domestic product, right? We, we've never seen that kind of spending on, on NASA since. They, they get less than 2% of, uh, the, uh, of uh, a budget there that's about 2% of uh, the gross domestic product now, whereas it got as high as about 10 in the early 60s. So, yeah, they're dedicating uh, about 10% of their annual wealth towards doing this and so first they started with all the mercury redstone rockets and sending people to space um prior to that they were sending you know monkeys and uh and uh um uh, insects and uh, rats and dogs if we include the soviets in on this right um and sure. then, yeah, we're, we're doing royal we that's the, every time i've been saying we i mean humanity oh yeah 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 but yeah, because yeah, you got to think of this holistically too. It's like yeah, the Cold War was on back then. They didn't think of it in terms of we, but yeah, as a as a heritage thing, this was totally a we. <laughs> and Apollo Plax even said it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, um, that then there was the Gemini program, which followed right after Mercury, and they'd already greenlighted Apollo by 1961 at this point. So it's like. Um, it was over a decade of intensive spending, um, a lot, a ton of pressure, rigorous testing, a lot of risks being taken, and all for the sake of getting there first. And so, yeah, it, it, and uh, people had asked, you know, well, how did we do it on the first try? And it's like, well, we didn't. First, right. you go to orbit. Then you go to a more distant orbit. You practice all your maneuvers out there. Then you start launching uncrewed missions around the moon. Then you send a crewed mission around the moon, like we're doing again now. Then you try to land. 
And if you succeed in that, you try it again and again. And so, yeah, it was a titanic effort. It, it produced results. But by the end of it, too, and this is something I've, I've said before in, in, uh, in our articles, and it, it kind of feels a bit heretical, but it's like, well, the Apollo program didn't really leave anything behind that was, like, lasting. It's like the achievement, yes, the legacy of it, the scientific findings, all that stuff was left behind. But I'm talking about infrastructure, right? As soon as all the rockets were expendable, the spacecraft were expendable, um, they left behind footprints and flags and some plaques and a few scientific experiments. And, you know, the bottom half of the landers, which they blasted off from to, to get out of there, um, but as soon as, and as soon as it was done, the, all the, the industry that was there manufacturing it was shut down for the most part or repurposed. So it's like, why haven't we been back there since? It's like, well, because we went there, it took a tremendous amount of money to make that achievement. But then, uh, the focus shifted to, um, smaller budgets and let's develop the technology for staying there in space so that that became the space shuttle and this and various space stations uh, mir uh, skylab and the iss so it's like yeah and all that took us well into the 2000s and it's only then that we began to contemplate well, let's go back to the moon but this time we're gonna go with the intention of staying right we're gonna we're gonna it's not gonna be a footprints and flags thing it's gonna be permanent infrastructure that allow us to keep going there in ways that are more cost-effective, using uh, as much as possible reusable elements, and then we'll have everything we need to then start doing uh, missions to Mars. And uh, yeah, and this this is one of the, has been my gripe there. And and when I mentioned the stupid decisions, that was entirely done by the Trump administration. Um, or rather just uh, Vice President uh, Mike Pence. This seemed to be all him and, and their administrator, um, Jim Bridestein there. They they said, oh, we're doing this by 2024 now. So five years instead of 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and it was just like, why? <laughs> why this deadline? Why impose this deadline at all? It's artificial and it's, it's throwing off the whole plan here. So... Well, I mean, yeah. we can guess as to why, because I think they yeah. assumed they'd win a second term and they want to have that achievement on, under their administration. I, I think yeah. I think it's fair to say that we, well, I think I, it's important to say for those who don't know, Matt is from Canada, so he's, yes. not, he's not American, so he doesn't necessarily have a horse in, in the race of our internal politics. Um, <laughs> so, Yes, that's true. That's fair. Um, of course, I do have family and who live in the States and... Uh, uh, many friends and colleagues, and you know they keep me apprised. And well, like I repeatedly tell them, if it gets so bad, just move here. I'll sponsor you. I'll smuggle you. I don't care. Yeah, it's but, not yeah. that easy just to move to Canada. It's it's. it's I, I know, I know. It's, it's pretty hard. They always remind me of that. It's like I shouldn't have to. So, and I think yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> right. But the yeah. smuggling sounds good. I, I'm not sure if you're really much of a smuggler, but uh, you know what do I know? No, no. Um, I'm, willing, I'm willing to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're adaptable. Yeah. You're a science fiction writer. You you have you have uh, creativity and ingenuity. Um, are there any other big myths or anything that, that we need to debunk or that I forgot about? I mean, I think I hit the big ones, uh, but you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, yeah, you definitely hit the, the biggest ones. Um, yeah, and um, let's say the only other myth is that um, 
Well, uh, going back to the moon has been advertised as this is going to restore American leadership in space. But the, the reality is it, it never lost it. Like China could land crews there tomorrow. And it's like, well, you're just catching up to what we accomplished with Apollo. If you want to you know, supersede us, then you have to build a permanent base there and then start sending missions to Mars before we do. That would, that would definitely show us. Um, but uh, yeah, it, uh, America has never ceded leadership in space. NASA has never ceded leadership in space. But um, yeah, the future going back and staying there and all that stuff there is going to rely on international cooperation like never before. And that's a really good thing. Well, this is a global powerhouse of a show, so we're not particularly concerned about that necessarily agenda driven. But most of our audience is in the United States, as am I. So, we, mm -hmm. so USA, USA. Okay, got it out of our system. Yeah. Great. So cool. Um, so okay. Well, that's you know, that's not really like the kind of myths that we need to. Do. You know, that's not like you know, man, man on the moon, you know, made of cheese. Uh, obviously, the Swiss have yeah. been there processing things. Um, yeah. Is interesting. Well, and I especially like the artificial object one because that just always reminds me of uh, 2001 uh, Space Odyssey. Sure. And, yeah, and it's like, uh, yeah, aliens left a century on the moon. Well, forget that. The moon is the century, right? It's, it's, there's a reason it's always got one side facing us there. It's so they can keep the optics focused on wherever they're looking down on at the moment. <laughs> That's right. And so we can't see what's going on on the other side. Yeah. It's probably where all the gears are and so forth, yeah. Um, and you know what? I That is one... And Megatron. That, uh, I would love it if it were true. Because it not only means we're not alone in the universe, it means someone's been around a lot longer than us, and rather than blow us up and wipe us out, they're just watching. <laughs> and it seems intrusive, but, you know, it's better than the alternative. Indeed. Unless they're just yeah. long-term predators. Uh, but anyway... Uh, yeah. You know, listen, my sister show is Garden of Doom. This, in fact, may be on Garden of Doom. Maybe a band Garden of Doom. I don't know yet because it could fit in either. Um, but yeah. if this was Garden of Doom, I would just, I would definitely be uh, putting forward the long-term predator uh, scenario. Um, okay. Well, I did you find anything on the, the proportions, like the 400 to 1 ratio, size of moon to, to sun or anything like that? And uh, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to do a deeper dive on that there. Um, <laughs> it was just basic, uh, just raw numbers from a NASA site and, and they weren't, uh, yeah, they weren't really addressing anything about significance of these proportions, just, are, you know, size, distance, blah, blah, blah. Are you all, are you at all familiar with Neil Armstrong's adventures after the moon landing? A little bit. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, I take it you're wondering, uh, are you wondering what he did after? That? Well, I, maybe. Uh, I, I mean, let me tell you what I have read and heard. So for one, yeah. the, you know, he was obviously a celebrity. He was the one that became like sort of like the, uh, the, the American hero that the marketing machine chose. Uh, instead of Buzz Aldrin, who I think you was angry about that in, until his dying day. Um, but the, the, apparently Neil Armstrong joined some expedition to the Andes, um, which, of, which of course people tie into that he found something on the moon that led him to have some sort of interest in geology or, or uh, archaeology, which is what that expedition was for. 
and also that he and Sir Edmund Hillary were taken by some some celebrity or whatever to the North Pole, um, yeah. uh, which made Sir Edmund Hillary the only person to be on the North Pole, the South Pole, and to climb uh, Everest. But Neil Armstrong was also on the North Pole with Sir Edmund Hillary. So I, you know, I, I don't know if any of this are tied to moon or more moon lore legend, or it's just something you do with a celebrity that, that, that you know, the seventies was sort of daredevil culture. Evil Knievel was a, was a celebrity, you know, Fonzie on happy days was sort of recreating those on television. The Dukes of Hazard brought us since the eighties, you know, with the car always, you know, and chips, you know, uh, doing busting wheelies and doing giant leaps. Um, so I'm not sure. Is there anything tied to the moon to that? Or is there any interesting about Neil Armstrong's exploits? Or is it just a adventurer doing adventurous things? Well, I'd say adventurer um, doing adventurous things. Um, he did, um, and, and compared to Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin has maintained a, oh, he's still alive, by the way. Um, he has maintained a... Uh, he is? A, a, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, he's Buzz. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I know some people who, who've met him and he's, uh, yeah, he, he is heavily involved in trying to get, uh, crewed missions to Mars happening. So he's a member of, uh, I believe the Mars Society and a lot of other nonprofits and, and advocacy groups. But anyway, Neil Armstrong did do some television appearances. Um, he, he did a few ads. He did lots of interviews and he did, uh, he talked for a while and, yeah, he absolutely did go to the, the North Pole, and one definite tie-in, his interest, an interest in geology, it's like, yeah, they they collected moon rocks while they were up there, and that the study of them led to all kinds of breakthroughs in, in science, and so, yeah, I'd say absolutely, he um, that would have definitely triggered an interest in geology down here on Earth, um, and uh, yeah, but other than that, he was, um, he kind of kept to himself, you know, he just wanted to lead a normal life after coming home. And that, uh, and, and that is interesting because it does kind of, uh, it illustrates that, um, what, uh, I've heard from some people who say that, you know, once you get back from something like that, how do you ever get excited about anything after that? Right. It's like, well, you know, we, we try to have our adventures. Uh, we may mainly, uh, you know, just try to live our lives like a normal person, yeah, and uh, yeah, try to do good work and outreach and advocacy and so forth because it's like people want to hear from you and and if you're lucky enough to go to space, everyone who has been there has reported just how it shifted their consciousness completely. Um, seeing Earth from orbit or from afar, it just it changes how you view it and, and you start to think, wow, it's a, it's a magical place and we are so lucky to to be alive and to have a planet that supports life uh, to uh, to set foot on. And, well, yeah, that's, that's a whole other topic there. It's called the overview effect. And, and yeah, generally the astronauts who, who all talked about this, it's like they, they all became pacifists, environmentalists, and uh, you know, uh, total, total internationalists uh, from this experience, right? So, yeah, protect Earth and stop thinking in terms of boundaries and borders and interests and start looking at the bigger picture. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Since our last conversation on space, have there been any major developments that uh, we should 
talk about that that we haven't sort of covered here with regards to Artemis? And it's fine if the answer is no. It, it really it was probably within the last sixty days. So it, uh, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, they finalized all the checks. They did the wet dress rehearsal um, for the for the rocket, and they rolled it back out, and so it's it's good to go. So not not really. Um, and, uh, I mean, well, James Webb, I think since the last time we talked, it's put out a, a bunch of images, which have been, all of them have been breathtaking to look at, but yeah, they're, they're really, they're leading to a lot of, uh, of just research and breakthroughs right now. It's, um, yeah, it's really quite impressive just how much, uh, like the returns that we're already seeing on that. So yeah, well, that, no, yeah, that, that big, biggest ticket items are going to be next week right and uh, and later nothing wrong with that that's that's Mm -hmm. that's what discovery is about uh one Mm -hmm. thing on james webb i don't know that my audience comes to me for this kind of thing but i only learned it recently and i think it might be interesting so james webb telescope doesn't see light the way we do it's an infrared telescope and it uses three different kinds of lenses or filters to even interpret the picture so that their eyes can see it so when there was a recent picture uh, of Jupiter that was more in whites and blues and grays, um, as opposed to the normal oranges and whites and the red dot and all of that, uh, Jupiter yeah. hasn't changed. That's just the way that it interprets the color to translate it to, to anything that we can see and recognize. So, uh, so just something on that. So if the pictures don't look familiar to you, that's that. But also we were able to see Jupiter's rings, which uh, I thought was pretty cool as well. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not sure how many people know that, but Saturn is not the only planet that has rings. Jupiter does. Uranus does. I think Neptune does. I'm not sure about Neptune. Um, yeah. But, Neptune, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those 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 gas giants have uh, have rings. So we're sort of left out, I guess. But but we have a moon, and we have a special moon that that. Uh, protects us and gives us light. So thank you, Luna, uh, for all of that. Matt, tell the people where they can find you, where they can read your work, where they can hear your podcasts, uh, where they can take your course, and where they can read your fiction. Oh, right. Thank you for mentioning the course there. I uh, I got lots of prep that still needs to be done there because that's going to be starting in a few, uh, well, in the, in the uh, date hasn't been set yet, but um, it will be starting in a few months if if not uh, six weeks. Um, but yeah, uh, people can certainly look this up. If they go to the Kepler Space Institute, uh, they will see a course that I will be teaching online this fall. And it's called The Exploration and Potential Settlement of Mars. So it's a six-part course in which um, I, uh, I run students through how our understanding of Mars has evolved over time, the cultural significance, science fiction depictions, and yeah, actual or scientific discus- discoveries and the missions that are planned there. Um, otherwise, they can find me at Universe Today or Interesting Engineering. And my my uh, byline there, underneath uh, anything I've written there, is, is my name, Matt Williams. Click on that; it'll show you all all the articles I've written since uh, since starting at either publication. And um, ah. Yeah, and a bit of an interesting, here's something that has changed since we talked last. Um, my publisher has had to shut down, or not entirely, but they've had to basically shed all of their, uh, all of the authors they've taken on um, because of COVID. So um, 
but I will be re-releasing my science fiction books, which can be found at Amazon. Um, they're called uh, the Formist series. So if you look for my name or just type in the Cronian Incident, it'll come up. Um, yeah, the, the beauty part is, even though the, the publishing house is, uh, is closing its doors for now, um, I've been able to re-release, uh, retain the rights and use the artwork, so I'm able to re-release them um, as a as a box set, and uh, yeah, they're uh, through Kindle Direct Publishing. Very so cool. that was uh, that was very fortunate there. Just you know, no Audible yet though, huh? Yeah, sorry. No Audible yet though. They they will still be available on Audible for uh, oh, a short time. But there they, is Audible. They will have to be. Yeah. Okay. They will be have to. They've been available there since they got published, but uh, yeah, they'll have to be re-released um, at some point. Oh, wonderful. Uh, which. Which is doable. I mean, you know, I can narrate them myself if I have to, I, even though there, there are people far more qualified to do it. I don't know. I don't know if there is if there isn't. Um, yep. And your podcasts are still going? Yes. Yeah. Um, recently started a podcast series there called Stories from Space. And that's uh, it's through the platform of uh, it, ITSP Magazine and they can find it on Spotify, um, Apple iTunes, uh, Amazon Music, and uh, there's a fourth one, Simplecast. Yeah. So all of those there, too. Just, yeah, type in stories from space and look for my name and you'll find it. All right. Well, very good. Everybody, check out his stuff and check out the prior shows where he's helped us with. If you are a fan of the old show Battlestar Galactica, I, I promise you no two people have done it better and more quickly than we did. One episode, not a whole season, um, and we dissected the heck out of that show, and I think that we got it as good as anybody else has. Uh, and also, uh, if you like this show, you'll certainly like the one on Mars, and you'll enjoy in uh, C2 resource utilization, because uh, Mars is about Mars, the moon is about moon, but in C2 resource realization, uh, utilization, rather, uh, covered mm -hmm. both of those things and, and all sorts of plans and, and a whole lot of other space science and plans for the future and realities for now and all, all sorts of great stuff. So check that out. We thank Matt for being now a frequent contributor to the Garden family of shows. And I have promised him, which is an easy promise because I've been wanting to do this to for us to do a show on Babylon 5. I'm a little rusty on my Babylon 5. I've got to... Uh, figure out a way to unrust without having to watch the whole series again, but that is my cross to bear. Um, and we'll get to that. And, and so you'll hear from Matt again, certainly on this network, but the good news is you don't have to wait for me. You can find his stuff on Audible. You can listen to his podcast. You can read his work. So once again, Matt, thanks so much for joining us here. And to the listeners, please rate and review my podcast. Please do the same for his. Share both with your friends, and uh, we will hear you again next week. I'm being followed by a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow. Leaping and hopping on a moon shadow, moon shadow, moon shadow. And if I ever lose my hands, lose my plow, lose my land, oh, if I ever lose my hands away I won't have to work no more and if I ever lose my eyes 
If my colors all run dry It's if I ever lose my eyes I won't have to cry no more Yes, I'm being followed by a moon shadow Moon shadow, moon shadow Leaping and hopping on a moon shadow Moon shadow, moon shadow And if I ever lose my legs I won't moan and I won't beg Oh, if I ever lose my legs Oh, if I won't have to walk no And if I ever lose my mouth All my teeth, north and south Yes, if I ever lose my mouth Leaping and hopping on a moon shadow 